Hello, and welcome to Note Up, episode number 114. In this podcast, we're going to be talking about internationalization. I am your host, Bradley Farias. I work at GoDaddy, and I'm on TC39. Generally, people think of me as that ES modules person. With me today is Stephen R. Loomis. If you could introduce yourself. Certainly. Uh, my name is Stephen R. Loomis, and I'm in San Jose, California. I used to say sunny California, but if you look at the news, it's not, not always sunny, and that's been a bit of a change. I work at uh, IBM on the Global Foundations Technology Team. I work on the service on our Bluemix platform called Globalization Pipeline, and I also work on a library called the International Components for Unicode, involved in a number of Unicode-related standards uh, issue as well. And I've done a number of things with node internationalization as well, starting in the pre.12 days. And I'm currently the International Working Group Facilitator. And we also have another guest, Martin Heidegger, if you could introduce yourself. Hello from Japan. I'm a freelance developer working uh, currently in Osaka, Japan. I'm originally from Austria. So my mother tongue is German, which means I speak three languages. I'm a live translator. Every year at the NodeFest, the conference for Node in Tokyo. And I'm the maintainer of several of the Node School workshops and its core framework, currently Workshop Adventure. Martin actually translated my presentation at NodeFest last year. So that was interesting. So much yes, thanks for that. Nice. Sure. Before we get into our show, I'd like to bring in our first sponsor. Today's show is sponsored by Rollbar. DigitalOcean, and Sneak. One of the frustrating things about being a developer is dealing with errors. Relying on users to report them, digging through log files trying to debug issues, or a million alerts flooding your inbox ruining your day. With Rollbar's full-stack error monitoring, you get the context, insights, and control you need to find and fix bugs faster, with a lot less noise. It's easy to install. You can start tracking production errors and deployment in a few minutes. Rollbar works with all major languages and frameworks. Ruby, Python, JavaScript, PHP, and of course, Node. You can integrate Rollbar into your existing workflow, send alerts to Slack or HipChat, create new issues in Jira or Trello, and link your GitHub, Bitbucket, or GitLab repos. We have a special offer for NodeUp listeners. Go to rollbar.com slash NodeUp. Sign up and get the bootstrap plan free for 90 days. Loved by developers at awesome companies like Heroku, Twilio, Kayak, Zendesk, Twitch, and more. Give Rollbar a try today. Go to rollbar.com slash up. Okay, and let's get into things. The first question I have for you two is, what do you think is internationalization? or I-18-in, as sometimes you see it written? Internationalization, to me, is a, a wide spectrum of things. Basically, it's the acceptance that your code, your product, or your software will not be used by people in one area, but over the whole world. And for each area, you need to adapt to the localities, which is sometimes units, like you need to format how numbers are written, of course, it's text, reading, spoken text. It's iconography to me. So the symbols need, might need to change for the countries. But it's also other things like date management, time management, and, and, and various other approaches. 
yeah, to me, internationalization is getting computers to work for everyone in the world, you know, regardless of, of where they are, which means you need to know how, how people communicate, how they speak, how they read, how they write uh, in, in different areas. And there are a lot of different aspects to that. But that's the, to me, that's the core. It's, it really comes down to the, to the people. It sounds like there's a lot to cover here, so I'm going to try to break it up into bits, and we'll cover those section by section. There was a lot related to text, and let's try to understand that a little bit. There were some references to formatting or encoding. I'm curious in... What ways would you normally think about those two things? I know there is this INTL object that's available in JavaScript. And does that do all the things that you're looking for? Or are you talking about something more broad? Yeah, the the INTL object does a lot of, of what's needed. Uh, and that was kind of my first foray into Node Core, was trying to get the INTL object there and available uh, to everyone to use. One of the nice things about the the Node environment based on JavaScript is a lot of the encoding issues aren't as much of a concern at the at the level of, of most applications. Very briefly, previously, the way text was stored on computers or similar devices, I have a 1940s teletype around here somewhere that uses a 5-bit code. But previously, systems were designed just for one language. So the teletype only works in English. It doesn't even support... I wouldn't even support German with with uh, um, umlauts and other characters, but what Unicode has done is level the playing field. So there's one one single encoding that supports all the world's languages. So that way, the encoding issue is is largely solved. Although there they do remain some issues that need to be looked at today. The encoding issues basically stem from various sides from the fact that people write in different characters and the character sets, and in the whole world, so the Chinese character set, the Japanese character set, it, it's vast. And a lot of those characters that are finding its way now to Unicode are old. So even if you were able to express yourself in Unicode these days, many characters that would have needed a description or a complex way to describe it can be written in a more natural, natural way. Okay, so it sounds like Node uses Unicode all the way through is what I'm hearing. And the INTL object has some relation to this formatting that we talked about earlier. Are there other common things that people think about with either formatting or some sort of encoding that people use outside of Unicode or INTL in Node commonly? One of the most common things that I've found is MomentJS. MomentJS is a library to, well, most people know it because the date uh, implementation in JavaScript is suboptimal, as people might say. So MomentJS allows us to actually show the date formatting properly, and particularly in an international concept, MomentJS is vital when showing dates for different time zones. It's important to bear in mind that the, even the Intel object that is added to JavaScript is not a one-size-fits-it-all solution, and I have yet to see one that actually does that. In order to provide information to a lot of people, you have to expand the way you can express things, and Intel.js is a, a good step in that direction. 
Yeah, I, I think that there's a, a lot that needs to be done in, in terms of what's available in the, the core language standard. And Bradley, you're, you're familiar with the TC39 and, and ECMAScript. And so there's, there's a lot that's available that gives you kind of a baseline. You can think of kind of you have a foundation and you have a first level with INTL. And then for currently, there's for a lot of features, there's different libraries that, that you can add on top of that, like Moment.js, that will give additional formatting where the control may not quite be available and even the latest spec. So I, I, I think the the what's available in the the core spec will keep will keep growing and it has does continue to grow in ECMA four oh two. One of the f- focus of the of the spec has been to enable libraries to be able to add on features a- as they need to. Okay, so there's definitely other libraries in play here. We touched on time here with Moment.js. It's a bit hard for me to express the differences that I can realize about time, because I'm from the United States and we do our dates very different from the rest of the world. But I can imagine things are much, much different, especially in foreign places that I am not familiar with on how to deal with that. Um, In particular, I'm curious about the date line and remote teams. So I work on a remote team. Is there any sort of concept of this kind of managing time across all these different time zones at once, especially if we're talking about changing how time is shown to people? I think you can start from where things break down. I mean, we might have seen the some of the issues you run into when you make assumptions about how, how time is displayed. I'm thinking particularly of, of the year 2000 problem, you know, some years behind at this point. But, you know, when you make an assumption that two digits is is sufficient for showing a year, then you run into issues. And I think a lot of internationalization, what I've seen over time, is just the the breaking down of those assumptions and realizing that there's there's yet another kind of fork in the road where some people do uh, write time this way and some people write time another way, for example. In terms of time zones, the best practice is to use uh, coordinated universal time or Greenwich Mean Time and then display the time as close as possible to the glass, uh, to the users. In fact, that's kind of a general principle is the, the more you can do right in front of the user, you're better off. If you can leverage what's on the user's own device, let's say if they're holding something, and do as little as possible on a, you know, a distant server somewhere that may not be in their time zone, for example, then you can, you can really get closer to what, what the user wants, just as a general principle. With time, there are a lot of variants that play into the whole concept of, of, of noting and, and writing down time. It's very interesting to remember that the time is synced between computers and the times are not necessarily always uh, properly in sync. And there is always the, the distance between two places that, that sums to time delays, which means the time shown at one computer, particularly in highly connected networks, uh, and the time that is entered there might be off towards the time of other people. The time off when recording or displaying or, or rendering time, usually people think, yeah, that's within a second or something like that. But configurations can be really off. 
and I have seen projects fail by not accounting for off errors by minutes or hours. This is particularly confusing if you use the JavaScript regular object and not moment.js. If you don't go the milliseconds from 1970 GMT spec for saving data, but rather relative time zone that other people can't interact with your data. And for example, if you put an alert at a certain time and you use the client's time to sync, problems might occur. Yeah, there's all, all sorts of fun edge cases where, for example, I had I had set an alarm once. I was on a train and I set an alarm and the we went through a time zone. And at that time, there was a bug where the alarm wouldn't switch zones properly in this particular device. And so, you know, the, the alarm was at, was was off. Not a fan of daylight savings time. Uh, you won't find that in my plug section, but that's another topic. But there are a lot of cases where if you can leave the human side of it to the humans and then for the computers trans transmit time, at, as you were saying, Martin, in milliseconds rather than as a, a literal written out date, then you can be better off. There's There's also the cultural aspect of time where people think of different time periods differently in Ethiopia, for example, they call one o'clock the first hour after dawn. And so there's there can be very different ways of looking at time. You both brought up about storing things in a computer-specific manner. And I'm curious about the other side, the human manner, because like you two were saying, there are different time zones in which people do things. And people often work hours say, nine to five normally on weekdays. And I can imagine how that's a problem internationally. What does it entail when we're talking about internationalization from a computer programmer perspective to have to support these people who are on different work schedules than you are? Do you have to adjust to specific things or is there some best practice that you two have seen over time? In the Japanese and German format and English formatting, there is always the, the nice mistake of the order, year, month, date, which always trips me up. Like, always when I have to, to deal with American people, I'm, uh, I'm um, confused by the, the month, date, day ordering. I think it dates back to accounting practices in the U.S., in Japan, additionally, there is a era counting that is not from 2000 BC, but actually from the the inauguration of the emperor, the current emperor. So we have, I think, they say, what is it, 29? Yeah, something like that. You have to to consider your audience. Like, if I show the date to a Japanese person, and if the Japanese person is a young Japanese person, he might be familiar with the writing 2017, but if you want to show something in a traditional manner, like, I don't know, traditional homepage or newspaper or something like that, they feel more familiar with the, with the Heisei, right, uh, with the era writing as the emperor. So it has to do not just with the, with the way things are noted, but also with the way people are uh, comfortable with things. Another nice example for this, I think, is units. The UK recently switched from imperial units to metric units. Officially, the country wanted to just switch. They just said, now we just don't use lips anymore. We, we, we measure everything in kilograms. And the people were obviously not 
so happy about that because they didn't know how to, to shop anymore. So the supermarkets and the stores were allowed to and had to, for the customers, display the units both in imperial and metric units. And that is not because the law of the land says you should use these writings, but because the market and the people that you're exposing them to goes that way. Another nice example for this is space travel. It is recommended and uh, very important that in an international project where you work on hardware that you better use only one unit of measure rather than the local unit of measure. So if I were to write a, a software that helps managing hardware production, I would not, in fact, internationalize, but make sure that everybody you know, has the same unit. So internationalization can be the wrong thing to do sometimes. Is that what you're saying? Yes. And actually, there's there's some data in, there's a project under Unicode called the Common Locale Data Repository. And there's actually some data now for units as far as what do people measure snowfall versus measuring how tall a person is. And those those are sometimes different different units. But it, it really it really comes down to dealing with preferences. And I, I think one thing we've seen is that as devices are more sophisticated, at least the devices that people will hold, user expectations go up. People expect a more conversational type of interoperation with computers. It's not enough to just get by with something, but they want it to feel more comfortable, as you were saying with the year. People want those little touches to really make them feel at home. So I've been avoiding this topic, but in terms of comfort, for example, I'm currently hosting a podcast in English. A lot of people consider translation or localization a vast amount of internationalization as a whole. I'm curious on if there are any specifics you two would like to talk about for what exactly it means. Is there a difference between the two terms? I know there's a lot to cover here, but it sounds so simple. There's certainly a difference between localization and internationalization. Consider a company that wants to, to sell abroad. This company might just offer an international approachability, which means they, a Japanese company would, would set up a website in English and they would translate their content from Japanese to English, not in order to sell in the other market, but in order to, to be able to be contacted by the other mar market. If you localize things and then it goes way, way past translation. Localization is particularly important. Like I, I see a particularly importance of localization in the Japanese market. If you look at the various web pages of startups like Stripe or Slack or other companies, you have to adopt your solution to be attractive to the market here if you want to sell. It would be easy to say that this is just a country border that you're dealing with, but in many cases it's actually more fine-grained. You sometimes have to deal with localization in terms of different formatting. You have to consider things like public holidays. It might even be that there are local holidays, you know, like that you want to adjust to. Some of it makes sense from a business perspective that you do that, and then you have to adopt your solution to be actually more fine-grained than you initially wanted it to be. It almost gets down to the level of, uh, just just to pick an example, what does Bradley want the computer to do today? 
it almost gets down to that level with localization. And it, it really requires a lot of knowledge that goes beyond, goes far beyond text. I think we've talked about plenty of different things that pass even linguistic requirements. I think there's sort of an, an enablement aspect that says, don't mess up the text. If you put in some Japanese text, don't don't damage it. Make sure it, it comes back out and it works. And then there's the level of translate it so that it has the right language for the user. And, and that's, a, that's something that has a, you can continue refining that basically as much as you can when you localize. Completely agree. Okay. So I think we've covered a lot of the topics. There's just one last one I want to go back on. Martin, you were talking almost as if things are countries and borders. We haven't really talked about just locations. I know there are different ways that people will give directions, for example. When I'm in the United States, I expect you to give me specific street number or something like that. Whereas when I'm in a more rural setting in the U.S., I may just be getting turned left at this landmark if I'm asking people for directions. Can you just talk about how maps are involved in this whole process and locations, either storing the data or what people are expecting when we're talking about all this kind of localization between... We abstract the world, always, and it's good to keep in mind. Computers maintain an abstract model of what is happening in the world. It was very interesting to see when Google Maps came out. Like, it used to fit exactly, but after a year or two, some things changed. The same thing happens to, to the notation of addresses as well. If you think the address in a, in a city is given by word, like you have to go left, right, or how to find a place, those things change over time and you have to update the understanding for it. There are services that provide you with regular update of this, like they provide you with the list of country names because the list of country names is something that is subject to change. The list of cities is subject to change. The size of a country, like the borders, is subject to change. The way streets work is subject to change. So even if you show the data to a user uh, for an address, the way to get there might be outdated at that point. And uh, that's a really tricky question. That is something that Google is, is, is fighting with. And it's better to rely for that on services. Google Maps is surprisingly well done. If you have to deal with this sort of thing, it's surprisingly well done. But in Japan, it still has big issues, particularly with addresses, because the formatting rules of Japanese addresses and the, the transliteration of it does not work very well. So if I have to say an address to a foreigner here, I would write it in English, I would just transliterate it and it would be fine and he would find it if he asked the person, but if he enters the same text in Google, he will not find anything. He has to enter it in Japanese characters in order to find something on Google, which is a real tricky technical question. When we are dealing with internationalization, it's always a deep dive. You can, you can go as far as you want, but you need to make sure that you don't go too deep in order to like, lose yourself in, in maintenance issues. When you even have countries changing name, for example, the Czech Republic is now likes to refer to itself as Czechia. So those are things you need to 
watch out for over time. I mean, I visited Yugoslavia, but now it's the Republic of Serbia and other countries that were in the former Yugoslavia. Did they keep their country code in ISO or did they get a new one when they changed their name? No. In fact, there's some CLDR data that maps this, but YU is now deprecated, I think. So Serbia is the RS, Republic of Serbia, ME, I want to say is Montenegro, Bosnia has a different code. So even even these codes that we've made for countries change over time, not just their names. Yes, they do. It's even, <laughs> I'm sorry, it's worse than this that. example. Yeah, no, it's worse than that. Think of Taiwan. There was recently a news article about this as well, but you can consider Taiwan as part of China or not. So depending on which audience you go, you better make sure that you call it China and not Taiwan. Okay, well, I think this is a good stepping off point for our next segment. So let's take a short break for our next sponsor, DigitalOcean. DigitalOcean is the best place to get your application off the ground quickly and the easiest to scale when you find success. Start with the pre-configured Node.js one-click to get up and running in 55 seconds or build the exact infrastructure you need with root access to servers running 100% SSDs in state-of-the-art data centers around the world. DigitalOcean's easy-to-use API makes integrating tools like Jenkins and Terraform simple. DigitalOcean is the fastest-growing cloud infrastructure provider because it's built for developers and laser-focused on its mission to create simple and elegant solutions for developers and teams. DigitalOcean community articles provide guidance on a wide array of topics that help developers build better and faster infrastructure. Many of the Node.js packages for different Linux distros are actually built and tested on DigitalOcean VMs by Node.js and Nodesource. Get $10 credit when you sign up for a new account through the link do.co slash nodeup. As an added bonus, every time a new listener signs up, another randomly selected old listener gets a bonus $25 credit. Okay, and we are back. In our previous section, we were talking a lot about what internationalization is, and we are talking at a very high level, just kind of discussing the topics that we are considering to be part of internationalization. Let's take a little bit more technical dive in this section and discuss what are our technical concerns here, you know, the environments we're working with, operating systems. We're talking about Node in this podcast, but within Node, there's also different things like there are attempts at translating the documentation. I know there's stuff with errors. I'm sure there's plenty more to discuss when we're talking about even deployments. So let's just kind of walk through this as a technical perspective on this. The first thing I really want to know about is opinions on operating systems and if they have a large impact when you're trying to do internationalization for Node. I think less less than than they used to. I mentioned the the international components for Unicode library. We do do a lot of work there in terms of porting and supporting things cross platform. And the the situation is not quite as rough as it as it used to be in terms of differences between platforms. And I think 
probably Unicode adoption is is one of those that you know when you have international is just on it's just on the radar more for different environments and no one wants to see no one wants to see data loss and corruption no one wants to see something that works somewhere but it doesn't work on this operating system and so i think there's a lot more cooperation now in terms of of the operating system as far as the environment for an internationalized component one of the things that comes up for something like formatting is just getting at the data itself you know for modern languages the data set is about 25 megabytes for all the data which doesn't sound like a lot i mean your splash screen might be 25 megabytes these days easily but it is it is something and when people are are paying for the memory use of their application you want to keep that as small as possible that's always something that's on my in my view is is dealing with how to best load the data needed for formatting but also for the translations of a certain application in terms of operating system it might also be important to note that we are living in first world countries and i'm currently sitting on a macbook i'm pretty sure the influence of the the high powered and modern hardware that we have removes the accessibility in other countries there are lower computer levels available in rural areas, poorer areas of this world. And uh, if the Node.js core team addresses things like it, it has to work on Windows, and if NPM says, like, we need this feature to work on Windows, it partially means we need to make this feature work for a greater audience. And this audience is maybe not in the Western hemisphere, or it's not in the, the first world countries. But it's important to reach everyone. Yes, very well put. I think in a lot of a lot of places in the world, the the computer is is actually a phone, and so and it may be a eight core smartphone, or it might not be. And so you need content, regardless of what what part of the stack it is. You need it to be available and consumable by users in there, and also devices. Node runs on more than just just server side and or even desktop, but but even on, on devices, need to make sure that a solution doesn't lock out a hardware hardware device. And I think configurability is part of that, as what I see. Being able to say, sure, build, you know, give give me all the content you can for this environment, or slim it down, or make it even configurable for for something that's deploying over a you know meter data line. Um, a, a low bandwidth metered line to get the bits onto that computer slash phone in the first place, and then being able to run in a in that environment. Yeah, very very well put. That's interesting to me, especially with the smartphone bit. Are there concerns still since we're talking about twenty five megabytes is something to think about, but sometimes international fonts are much larger than 25 megabytes. Do most things ship with all the ways that you need to render your internationalization to text? Or is this also mostly just working with Unicode and the ICU? Fonts are a real issue in Japan. The Japanese average font has around 8 megabytes if you want to load it. 
And no matter what website you're hosting, and even if it's hosted in Japan, 8 megabytes is a lot to transfer before the first rendering. That's why a lot of Japanese websites completely avoid custom fonts. As a suggestion for everybody who does documentation, uh, or reads Japanese documentation, the, the, the prejudice something comes, oh, it doesn't look good. Yes, but it, it, it works on the displays. You know, like the, it uses the system font, but at least the system font displays the characters properly. Yeah, and for, for Japanese, the, the things that are going to get some of the characters that might not be included if you if the font doesn't support them well might be someone's might be personal names. Those are often the characters that, that won't get supported properly if there's you know, if the font doesn't have the complete support for something. I know that's probably about the worst you could do. Some other common errors occur in the, the HTTP headers. Like if you send the HTTP headers wrong on Windows, it would show only squares because the, the encoding is set wrong. So that's something to take care of. Even if, you, if you, even if it works on your computer, it might be worth to check on different operating systems to see that they are actually displaying the text properly. There have been bugs in browsers. There have been problems in, in reverse proxies that didn't handle the encoding properly. So if you're hosting your site, it may be worth checking it in the respective target area or target computer. Yeah, and it is it is a bit hard to to know what you know when you get when you get those specific computers, they may they may have different sets of what languages are, are available. They may not have you know, keyboard support for something. I mean, I think of uh, Ethiopian, for example. You know, there may or may not be an Amharic keyboard support in a, in a certain area. Even if the font is available, there may not be a way to to select the language from a um, keyboard support. There's a full set of things needed to to make sure there's there's language support. I call it sort of full stack language support, all the way from encoding through fonts and keyboards and spell checking things like that. And is that a common problem for specific countries? You called out Ethiopia in particular, so I'm a little curious if there are specific languages or countries that have stood out to you. Yeah. I know in in Myanmar, formerly Burma, there's a an encoding called Zaji, which is it's if it was not Unicode, it would make things simpler. But it's sort of almost Unicode for the dominant language, but prevents use of other languages at the same time. And it's extremely common, and di- didn't really show signs of abating until more recently. And there's some governmental support and such, but it's this kind of issue where you have this content that's in a format that prevents other minority languages from working, for one thing, much less sort of full modern interaction with, with software. So it's, just, it's an issue, and there's, there's tools that are already worked on to improve the situation there. When I say that, that you know, Unicode has brought solutions, it doesn't mean that there are no, no problems remaining. Even in Japan, a country that has computers for quite a while now, the old technologies prevail. For example, if you're in Windows and you enter text regularly in your notepad, it's going to be stored as shift-gis. There is a Japanese encoding standard. And for the interoperability between Windows and Windows and all the versions of Windows, it has been kept. So if you receive data, particularly within a zip file from a Japanese person, it's going to be shift-gis encoded, which makes things like data upload and, and, and processing of data quite a bit harder. 
And that's true even today, is yes. what I'm hearing. Even today, yes, it's it's true even today. There are there are even non ASCII data sets such as EPSIDIC that I work with and support. You know, the the good thing is that there's good definition in a lot of cases into and out of Unicode. I'd like to see other encodings be a historical footnote someday, but that's going to be a long, long time before we get there. So we briefly mentioned government in that last little topic. Community is definitely a huge thing when it comes to either simple translation or just trying to figure out how to communicate between different areas of the world. Because we have local meetups, we have larger you know, projects on GitHub, even going so big as something like the Node Foundation. So I take part in ECMA, which is kind of the JavaScript-y side of things, but I'm more interested in what do people do around internationalization and creating these projects and governing them? Is there is there a common thing going on within Node.js's community, or are they kind of isolated right now? Yeah, I think when one of the things that was interesting around the time of, of the IOJS fork and rejoin was the all of the language communities that, that sprung up in a relatively short order. And so you suddenly have a Node.js community in a lot of different languages. Some of them were already were already there, but there were a lot that, that started at that time frame. One of the things that I wanted to see was to see some more collaboration across those. I don't know of specific progress on that. I know there's a lot of good work being done, but I think there there could be more more coordination between, certainly in, in core. I'd like to see that some of these different different issues that Martin's mentioned, you know, that we see, you know, that people have a way to get feedback about saying, I don't like the way this date format shows up. You can open a bug, but realizing that there's, there are ways to get, get things changed and improved and also working on translations. And as far as how those are structured, I'm not sure. Martin, maybe you have some thoughts on that. The... Node.js and the Node School translation efforts that I've witnessed, and they have all had management problems or management issues over the years. And one of the big problems about it is that it's it's a lot of work. It is limitedly rewarding over time. So at the first, you you get there is a lot of excitement around translation because uh, you get the content from not being readable in your language to being readable in your language, and the translators learn a lot about the technology in question, giving opportunity for other countries, for other communities to be able to step up and say, like, we own part of this too. We may, may only own the translation, but we own it. I think it's a crucial aspect of the community. Take Node.js for an example. And if you are a lot of technologies that spring out of the Silicon Valley and they spring out of West Coast US, they are seen as foreign. And they are treated as foreign in other countries. So it's like, yeah, we know they exist. And we know that Silicon Valley is kind of pushing it. And 
this is going to be hyped and probably a good idea to, to, to move on to that. But it's not ours. We have nobody here that is proficient in it, and we have nobody here that tried it, and we have nobody that we could ask. Having internationalization heads, having people in the countries that are able to say like, yeah, we, we do that, we did that, we are opening ourselves to these other communities and we are saying, you have a voice too, I think it's very important. I think that a lot of people will avoid a technology if that is not given. The governance might be hard and there need to be incentives and there needs to be a way how to make sure that there is kept a track of when things change. One of the very hard work at, at translation is to make sure that you're staying in sync so when changes happen, that you have a workflow, how to get that translated in all the languages. If you look at projects like Firefox or Chrome, they have open translation projects, as far as I remember. They show the, the level of translation for each language online on their websites. That's a personal boost. And if, they, if the numbers go down, you can see people stepping up their game. So is there... Any kind of thing like that, I don't know if you'd call it translation coverage or internationalization coverage going on. In particular, we talked about there's this sense of attribution and sharing ownership of the project. I personally don't know of any tool that's currently being used to help either keep the documentation in sync between languages or just the internal strings for all the messages in Node. Has there been any effort on this? Not as far as I know. There are services that offer open source tiers for maintaining international communities and internationalization communities. I'm not aware of any of those being used by Node.js and I think there has been some effort trying to get it done, but all those technologies, they're working very good at application level translations, and they are not, not as efficient with long text or prose content. There's definitely things that need to be done or that could be done to make, make joining the Node project better. At the moment, Node.js is not internationalized, so if you install Node at your computer, it doesn't come with the internationalization pack, you have to add that. Even if you download the internationalization pack, it only adds the internationalization libraries, but it doesn't come with actual translation of the text and the documentation. And there is definitely effort that would be really helpful, like infrastructure effort that would be really helpful to make translation easier for people. I see here and there people starting to work on it. And a great shout out to Vatilde. I always call him by his nickname. Taichiro. Taichiro, right. Because he starts various translation efforts for NPM and, and Node. Also Yosuke Furukawa, I think. There are efforts happening in this direction, but there is no uh, centralized management of it. And I do feel like there is a great opportunity for someone to step up and say, we make a good tool for Node, we, make a, we, we provide a good workflow for internationalizations, and we make sure that both the translation effort is attributed and that we make it simpler simpler for people to to join and uh, also keep up to date i think that would be a great a great thing to add is to add some more attribution for the these translations 
you know, perhaps something like a, you know, make it a, a, a game or a contest, kind of what's the top, what's the top translation at this, at this point, top translation project? Definitely. And you have to just look at other successful translation projects. They all show who contributes when and in which language and if the recent changes have been actually translated or not, like how old and how well it is translated. Yeah, I think I'm going to start an issue for that, and I'll, I'll put the link in the, the show notes. Awesome. Talking about attribution and working with people, especially remote people, who you can't see face-to-face, -face, which is how a lot of people understand emotions and different gestures can even vary between cultures. I know in the past, there's been a lot of people who come to the node issue board and it can be hard to communicate because English isn't their first language or they have different expectations on how you work on technical projects. Has there been any anything of note for either of you when it comes to how people in the node foundation handle for good or worse the cultural backgrounds and people coming to the community who aren't comfortable this is more of a general recommendation but if you have any project and any product and anything really you use a language to describe it and it's usually like for us it's usually english and when you write something in english you write it to the best of your knowledge and some people are great writers and uh, the documentation of vue.js of vue.js is a great example of that where the english documentation really reads very well and where you enjoy reading it if you do that it looks like a professional product it feels professional and it feels well done and if you invite others to translate the software to their language, they have a hesitation if they can maintain a similar level of professionalism or a similar quality for their target language. In this process, the quantification of how important it is that a project is maintained professionally or in a professional sense and can hinder people to join. So if you look at the Node.js documentation, the English documentation is really well fetched out and it is intimidating for the translator when he first comes in because he, he has to catch up on work that has been done by many people before. And he usually does it alone. I recommend at least to do it with one person reviewing your, your translation, but the English documents are usually written and reviewed by many people, giving a sense that even English, like giving a sense of, of language equality, helps a lot to bring people on. It's stressful to yourself to, to admit, like, we can do worse, and doing worse might be actually inviting other people, and we get grow together, you know, this sort of process. I think it's, it has to be cheered a little bit, and it has to be made acceptable. Stephen, do you have, do you have something about the... Node.js Foundation. On the topic of the English content, you know, the there's there are sometimes things that can be done on the English side to make things translate more easily. You know, I, I think about that when I think about using a particular idiom or maybe some cultural reference and try to think, 
is this really going to translate? If I, if I say a certain approach is putting all your eggs in one basket, then using that specific idiom might not translate as well, or it, it, may, not, it may be more difficult to, to communicate even to an English speaker if they don't know that idiom right off the, off the top. I think in terms of the, of the Node.js foundation, one of the things that is, is great about the Node community is that it does, uh, it does encourage people with different technical levels and technical interests to make use of Node. And I think that carries over into the, into the language as well. So I don't, I don't have any specific things, but I, I, it's something I'd like to see, to see improved in, in terms of, of that communication back and forth. And the user base is there, certainly, in terms of, of the user's language usage. I'm not sure what should be done as far as, as uh, communication across those communities. So there's definitely a lot to talk about community-wise, but I'm going to pull us back a little bit because I was trying to talk a bit about technical aspects in this section before we move on. And so let's just do one last technical topic before moving to the next section, which is basic infrastructure concerns when we're talking about internationalization. Usually when people are talking about infrastructure, they're talking about deploying to clouds and they're talking about high availability or things like that. What are the concerns we're talking about when we're thinking of international products or communities for deploying out and having infrastructure for your software. Mm-hmm. Well, I think you want to you want to think. I mean, I'm going to go back to the user. You want to think about where is your where is your user? Where are they going to be when they use your your software? What are the challenges that they are are going to face? And so you think about: Does this mean you need to deploy in multiple regions of the world? Do you need to think about network latency or firewall issues? Are you deploying to a place where there's maybe where the mobile reception isn't as good at certain times. And so you need to think about how how is the application structured to to consider those in terms of the server side as well as, as what's in what's in front of the user. And I think the other thing you want to think of is how can you test your in environment as close to what the user has. So do you have that might mean having a pile of different physical keyboards. It may mean having, you know, multiple computing devices with different operating systems running in different different languages. And we used to have a physical rack full of equipment and some of it was set to simplified Chinese but set to a time zone in Australia or something like that. Just to, to test different things to try to to try to see where the issues are before the user runs into that. Some more practical aspect of it might be documentation. Recently, we, we were all blessed with service workers. It is possible now to publish documentation for products in a way that is available even if your devices are offline. I think that is a great thing to consider. Also, like if you host your services or, or documents on the web, you might need to make sure that it's hosted in the region because even if it's accessible, it might not be quick. What you perceive as fidelity in your area might not be the case in other areas. So you cannot share your excitement with people of other countries simply because they are frustrated waiting 
for your stuff. I do have a question about things, particularly hosting in different countries. I know sometimes there are either firewalls or restrictions on sending data into or out of countries. Is there any general way we could learn about that as a whole, or is that more just you have to go read Wikipedia yourself to figure out all those things? I don't know if there's a technical community that actually tries to track all of that. I think that I actually, I remember having a, a client request for exactly, exactly that. So I, you know, I think there, there could be some benefit to that. The difficulty is that with anything related to kind of legal government, kind of the short answer is not just talk to a lawyer, but kind of talk to your lawyer. And it, it just is something that it's going to be different for different people looking at it. And so it's, it's a difficult problem to generalize looking at some of those. I think the, the more you can get information out on something like a Wikipedia article about a country and keep that up to date, not just with what's official, but what's really happening on the ground. That's one of the things we see is there might be an official standard for the way a date is written, but what people practically do might be something, uh, something else entirely. And it's the same with these restrictions. You need to need to be able to have contacts that that know really what's happening in a specific area. That makes it can make it more challenging for something like an open source project to have a generalized approach to that because some of these are kind of specific to who's who's asking the question. But there are definitely things that that need to be be kept in mind. The Great Chinese Firewall is the example, I think, that you're pointing at. And in most situations that I have seen, the local government actually provides detailed information about the restrictions to the public. It might not be in your language, and it might not be updated because translation is an effort and it, it, it always takes time, and you know, updating it takes time. Your lawyer might be a great place to, to consult Additionally to the local authorities, in Japan, hosting is quite free, like uh, liberal, in a, in a sense of liberal. Depending on which country you go, the, the legal standards might be different. Not just that. If you, the legal standard of a country might prevent you from moving data, but it also might enable you to get access to different projects, for example, if you set up a company in Japan, the, the general no, notion that you have your servers in Japan and that your data doesn't move out makes it easier for you to interact with government because they are not allowed to store data abroad. I was not calling out any specific countries because I've had past experiences with all sorts of countries that actually have this limitation. So I was more curious from people more experienced in international affairs than I. So it sounds like definitely we're not lawyers. So go go find a lawyer that knows his stuff or her stuff. There are things to, to look at, and some of these do affect. There's not just firewall issues, but I'm, I'm thinking particularly privacy. And Martin, you were mentioning sort of data, data provenance as far as whether the data leaves Japan. 
And so those are, you know, these are things that do affect people's privacy. So they're, they're issues you want to take seriously. It's difficult to give a general, you know, kind of a general discussion without looking at kind of who's asking and what's the, what's the intended use case. Well, I think that is a great stopping point because this is getting a bit hairy for me uh, to use an idiom. Let's take a break. Our next sponsor is Sneak. Sneak is a London and Israeli company building developer-focused security tools, primarily focused on securing open source code. One in seven NPM packages carries a known vulnerability, and roughly 83% of Node.js shops are using vulnerable packages. Sneak checks your dependencies against their open source vulnerability database, and then helps you find, fix, prevent, and respond to any vulnerabilities in your application. If you're using GitHub, the fix can be as simple as an automated pull request that Sneak submits with the necessary fixes. You can easily integrate Sneak into a CI system like Travis or Jenkins to make sure your application is monitored continuously. Open source projects are free to monitor, and there's also a free 14-day trial for your private code. Find out more at snyk.io node. We're back, and for our final section, I would love to talk about actual projects and tools people are using to solve all these things that we've been talking about for the previous two sections. So we've talked a lot about translation. We've talked some about dates. If you two could kind of take the reins here and walk me through different examples of people doing things and how either they have solved problems or they're using libraries, tools, etc. to work with internationalization concerns day to day. Let's just start with translation, for example. We've talked about Node School a bit. There's some efforts for Node.js translation. What are people really looking at when they're trying to figure out how to translate these existing documents that they find on GitHub or some other place? It's always a question of approachability and computing that happens in translation. If you think about a traditional translator, how he gets his document, it's like you, you write something down, you hand it to him, he translates it and gives it back. That is because of the simplicity, because a translator doesn't know the technology. In our case, we can go further, but there is a technical understanding involved as well. So YAML as a data storage for, for translations might be a better format, better suited than JSON. But for Node School and also in the, in the talks for NPM, JSON is actually used because it's processed fast, quicker by Node because people know how to edit it. YAML would be a lot better suited, and for, for a project that can afford YAML, I definitely recommend that, because you can do things like multi-line entries and stuff like that. But it is just another level of complexity. You can increase this complexity in, in various steps. So the next step for me mentally would be to use Google Docs. Google Docs is available to a lot of people. Google Docs has a CSV export where you can get each key. You can use it as a, a community tool where you can invite people to edit it. You can use your API and whatnot to download and process the data. And then you can go further 
to tools like Crowding or Locais, which are services, online services that add additional community features on top of that for the translation. All of the translation is that I'm talking about, or most of the translation that I'm talking about, is menu-style translation. So small user interfaces, not, not heavy on content. In the Node School, we also have a translation on, on bigger documents, which is markdown-style content. And certainly, a text-based format is, and markdown in particular, is the basis for, for long-form text. Markdown does not have all the editing features of a Google Doc or a Word document, which is why people go over to that area. And if you want to go like a few steps more professional, you can go into services that connect you to your translators, if you have a professional team of translators, where you can keep track of the various sections of the translation. We spoke about Node School. Are there other projects that have been really successful in using all these different tools? Are there kind of best of breed examples for people doing translations for their technical projects? I think one one example that that I'm involved in is the globalization of, of Kibana, the um, Elastic Kibana dashboard in Node.js. I've been involved in the the architecture of that and and some of the early work. You mentioned Martin the some of the challenges of formats. One of the benefits of JSON is it's native, you know, it's the JN JSON. It's native to Node and so it's it can work better for that, but an interchange is, is certainly an, an one of the things we look at in terms of of dealing with translations. There's actually a technical committee on localization interchange which I chair. And one of the issues we run into is just word count. How do you count how many words are in a, a markdown document if you want to say how much work did you do to, to translate it? Formats are kind of like the encoding of the, the localization world. I have a friend example that I can show. Um, it's the translation of Discover Meteor. It's Meteor JS book. The translation has been started by uh, using... It's a, it's a that you can buy, but the translations are for free, and the translations are community effort. And if you look at the Discover Meteor translation page, you can see that he made uh, Git repositories for everyone, and it kept track in a very personal fashion. I think it's a it's a very nice example of how you can do translation. It's a very nice example of community interaction on that point. And I think it should be noted that he didn't use a library or a tool for it, but he just wrote it himself because it was quicker and it was more personal for him in that case. Another big project that is interesting to look at is Drupal. Uh, it's a PHP project, but it's really heavily translated. So both Drupal and WordPress, so these two PHP CMSs, have a great user base in all over the world. And their translation effort and their translation work is certainly a reason for why they are popular, but also a reason how they keep being popular in the, the in the various areas. One particular example of it, it is like Drupal Commerce, which is a sales tool. Like, I think the biggest problem, in and the the one that is trying to be addressed most often is sales. If you think about international scopes, trying to sell something to as many as people as possible is is one of the most desirable goals. So if you look at the frameworks like SourceForge 
and Drupal Commerce and WooCommerce, they all have excellent support for internationalization. And in some cases, they have been like pioneers in the open source world. Very good. And I, wor I work on a, a service called the Globalization Pipeline on IBM Bluemix. That's a RESTful API for managing translation. It has a Node.js Node SDK. Put a link to that. So I've made use of that. You can see on my blog, I have some examples of some different using that for different types of translations. The community aspect, I think, is a really neat aspect of, of some of these different projects. I think Wikipedia is a good example as well, just the way that the, the multilingual content works in Wikipedia for looking at non-node examples also. That's kind of, the, kind of my definition of a of translation community. It might be also important to point out that some translations don't work well. There is a discussion always going on in translating the errors in Node.js. And Java, and if you work with Java, you know that the error messages are translated. And that is good in a sense that the people can understand the error that happens in front of them probably easier than they would in, in English. But it had a bad side effect, which was that if you used Google to search for that error message, you wouldn't find good documents because that is a, a crowdsourcing issue, like particularly if you translate it to many languages. The minor languages will not have as good information about certain errors than they would be with, with English. You have to be a bit cautious about what you translate, and you have to make sure that the indexability and searchability is right. And I think Java is an example of how to not do it, probably. I think one of the things you run into there is that you 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 sometimes have a couple different users because you can you can translate an error message, and so you might get I I I run almost everything in Spanish, and so I see places that are translated and not. So you might get you might get some error, and what what are you going to do? You're going to do a web search to see has anyone else had this error. You might also file a bug report saying, hey, I got this error, and then the person who receives that bug report or customer service representative or just a, a helpful friend that is trying to help you through this problem, they also need to deal with that error message. And so you now have you know, a couple different users that are seeing the same message. And that's why error codes, I think, are... I think error codes are probably the best way to go there because then you have something that's... It doesn't have to be human-readable. I mean, let's face it, how often are error messages not even really in English? even if they seem like they're in English. But if you have something that's that's not translated, just sort of a code, then you can do a search for it. You can search the source for it. You can try to figure out what's happening without this extra layer of translation. So I think once again, yeah, there's there are times to not to not translate. I've certainly been pretty happy with error codes in the past, especially with Microsoft's documentation and recently with Rust. So are there any real major problems with this when you've been using error codes, or are they more just that little bit of extra information that may not always be useful, but when it's useful, it's immensely useful? I personally have the, the, the feeling that the recent error codes added in Node.js, they don't look like error codes like particularly the, the deprecation errors. If you just look over them, like not cautiously, then you will, it, it, it becomes this 
number number character mess that you can't immediately comprehend. And that is something that I've seen at the Node School events, and is something that I've seen with mentoring, is the seeing that something is an error is a very important user aspect. Not all error codes and not all error displays are done well. And I'm not sure Node.js is a stellar example of all of that. And particularly the JavaScript error codes leave something to be desired, in my opinion. I think this this might be something where it could be a good, this could be a good activity for documentation of what is the best practice around errors and error messages. Maybe if we have examples of sort of the best error codes that you've seen in a library or the best way of dealing with, with error messages, we can bring that out. I don't have any that come to mind off the top of my head, but that, that might be a good good sort of conversation to get to get going. I'm thinking kind of how to, how to best involve the community in terms of improvement here. When we're talking about ways that people can perform these translations, say you get an error code, for example, and you want to provide translations or internationalization for it. What libraries are people using today to accomplish this, where you have some sort of lookup key and you need to give different text depending upon the user's actual environment that they're running in? There are two formats that I am familiar with, generally, which one is i18next, it's one of the longer-running Node.js or not JavaScript translation projects. It just allows general lookup. A lookup is, in the in the basic aspect of translation, lookup is a very simple thing. You can you don't even need to use a library for it. You can just use a, a JSON string, get it in, and 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 be done with it. I eighteen next offers a fair deal of features on top of that. In Node School or in in the terminal environment you might need to not use that because it comes with features that are dedicated and designed for web servers. I myself maintain IE18N Core, which is the library used at the Node School for translation. It uh, is, is much more lightweight and significantly simpler. Traditionally, or let's say the longest used is the GetText format. It's been around from C times, I'm not sure when it was. Uh, Stephen, do you know <laughs> since when we have that? Yeah, Gitex, I mean, Gitex is POSIX, so it goes back. Yeah, way back. There are implementations of Gitex for Node.js, and Gitex comes with quite a few editors, and there are quite a few platforms built around the Gitex format, which makes it, might make it comfortable in your environment. Yeah, and I think as, as far as determining Determining what the user's environment is, you know, if you're talking about something that's a that's a, a web app, you're probably going to look at what your your particular application middleware is in terms of the uh, HTTP negotiation. It might be something that's handled by uh, as part of the Angular. If you're on if you're on the client side, it might be something that's part of HTTP content negotiation. You can use something like the I think it's called Negotiator component. I have, an, I have an issue on this. I can send a link to, to I'll put a link in the, the show notes as far as an example of using the HTTP headers to, to negotiate the content. There's actually a module for that, which is called Locale, 
npm gs package locale, which does that quite effectively and nicely for many cases. Yeah, there's a couple. Um, it does it. Some of them had issues with BCP forty seven support, where they would support some localities, but they didn't support the full spec. Just in in looking over a few different ones. Uh, Locale, so I, Locale supported everything as far as I remember. That's great. I find this very interesting because I've even taken a plane trip to other countries and automatically been swapped languages. So that's very exciting when that happens. It's very hard to swap to your language if you can't read anything. Yes. You, that's the first thing you want to find is how do you know the word for language, idioma, yeah, it's all, and so on to to be able to get back to to something familiar. There is a ISO standard for languages and for language codes. And if you plan to use it, translate your application, I strongly recommend to use it. And there are NPM packages and open source efforts to actually offer those language codes in a computable manner. Yep. BCP 40, IETF BCP 47 is the standard for the language tags uh, used in HTTP headers and other content. If you have to display it somehow, the ISO 639-1, I think, is a great lookup if you have to like get the name for your language. Yeah, now the, now the CLDR project has locale data for, for several hundred locales, and I think that probably would be the uh, most comprehensive source of locale data. I would definitely recommend making sure you have something that's, that's kind of standards-based on that. So that's for language codes, but we talked about several other things, formatting, encoding, and countries, even countries changing codes. Are there similar modules out there on NPM to help with those different problems, or is that something built in in any way? Depending on the domain, yes. Uh, there are service providers and I have to look up the address for that. But there are service providers that give you things like countries, and they give you updates on the lookup for, for things like postal codes, geo areas, and by extension also IP blocks that, are, uh, that allow to do things like geo-blocking. Most of them have NPM libraries, or many of them have NPM libraries. Some are maintained by, by the community, some are not. And they usually come with price tags, so you have to choose. So, so that's for the, the regions, because they are prone to legislation. There's also the, the aspect of units. And there's JS quantities, which is, I think, port from the Ruby quantities project, which is quite comprehensive in terms of converting units from lib to kilogram. It's not an easy topic because it runs into rounding errors uh, and you run into rounding errors and, and things like that. But that is certainly given. Stephen, have you heard of a library that is good for currencies? Not, not as far as currency as as like the, the conversion, but the the CLDR, CLDR data has, you know, has units and unit preferences and also the currency names. I'd see that something is sort of sourced from that data. You know, closure, for example, pulls from CLDR data. That's the largest and the best, because I'm I'm biased in towards that, but in terms of uh, updates and, and data. That's a lot of data. Let's Yeah. 
Yeah. What about encodings? Because I know, for example, when I print colors in my bash terminal, it looks pretty, but that makes life very ugly for Windows users normally. Is there similar concerns going on here with sending encoding with Martin, you spoke of Japan is still using a different encoding by common yes. occurrence. One of the, the things that I usually run in is that websites or our platforms are delivered with ShiftGIS. And ShiftGIS is not by default supported by request, for example. So you have to use a library called QS for request. I think there's QS icon V, which offers things like parsing of a ShiftGIS encoded query strings in URLs that you, you have to consider. I'm actually not quite sure if some, some things of that can be standardized by the Node.js core. Yeah, well, actually, no, I mean, Node.js links against ICU, which definitely has ShiftGIS and more code page conversion than you, you would want available to you. I think there was a proposal to expose it through core. I'll, I'll put a link in here to some, some ways for that. There are also NPM bindings for ICU out there that, that go then and build another copy of, of ICU and link against that. I think it traditionally trying to figure out a, 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 char a character set or converting something from UTF to, to ShiftGIS has not been easy because, for one thing, the, the user input does not say in which encoding it is, and it can be different from the thing that it says in the headers. And so if you, if you try to convert it from A to B, there might be issues happening, and that's why I think it stayed in userland for a while, or stays in userland still. But the other thing also is there is a certain security risk, a security issue. If you do a conversion, conversions can take time. It might not be a, a strict character-character conversion. It might be two characters, one character conversion, and there might be loops involved and endless loops and, and, and memory overheads and... DDoS attacks and stuff like that. So I'm not quite sure how, how well this can be put into the no core, but yeah. Yeah, and that, I mean, there's, there are detection, there's care set detection available. But the other, the other issue with that is, as you said, yeah, sometimes it's not tagged properly. Uh, yeah, but I think it's something that, you know, I'd like to see some of the, of the use cases you run into, and uh, maybe that'd be a good candidate for, for core. At least, as from an API perspective, is something that could affect um, performance as well. If if it's you know if the encoding becomes a, a bottleneck, that is very interesting. With the the infinite loops, I had never heard about. Um, it's a possibility. You know, the more code you add, the more bugs you add. Yeah, uh, certainly. Was that a is that a specific bug in in, in no, an environment? No, 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 no. It's a it's a theoretic bug. It's one that I don't want to. Great. Oh, okay. 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 So that's a lot for the HTTP. We were talking about nodes errors that it prints out to the console a little while back. Are there any concerns that should take place if you're working with the console? Martin, I know you've written an NPM package kind of in this area. Yeah, the console console the biggest issue with consoles is that they don't have, there, there is no concept of, of width. So they just print characters on a screen. Japanese characters are not 
clearly specified because the width of a Japanese character doesn't fit into uh, the width of a lat Latin character. Japanese or Chinese characters, actually. In consoles or in terminals, the, the width is usually assumed to double. So there is a, a library called WC size, right? And that's actually a C library that is used by many of the terminals to determine if a character width is one or two. Yeah, there's actually co there's core support for this that measurement as well, not too long ago. Right, that's cool. Still, if you have this the size different difference, it makes it really hard to form a text properly. One of the libraries that I wrote is called WC String, which allows you to pad and break text after like 80 characters when you render it to the screen because 80 characters is different in Japanese than it is in, in Latin. Very important little library. Yeah, I, I'm not sure what... I've, I, I need to get you on, on a, um, a thread on this. Um, <laughs> I'm, I'm not sure what, um, if there's much that can be done here other than without involvement from terminal vendors, but this is a, this is a very thorny problem. And it's made even worse by when characters change, how they do combining. I'm thinking of emojis where, th where things change over time and change between different vendors. But also the terminal isn't, isn't very friendly to some languages at all. For example, you can work with Arabic on the console, but it's painful. Yes, it is. The terminal vendors, they try to fit their software to what's working outside. And I'm not sure that something like WC string can be brought into Node Core. And I'm not sure it should, because it's, it has a specific purpose of using it in the CLI. And it is absolutely useless in the web context. The performance of it is definitely an issue. It, 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 it is a computing power, and it is not correct. So if anybody encounters any error with formatting on a terminal, I, I strongly recommend to, to, to search, to, to look me up, shoot me a note. Let's try to figure out how to, to format it properly, because... All the people will have the same issue, and we need to work around this. Unfortunately, yeah, it's it's interesting. It's interesting with uh, you know Node. The 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 approachability with Node has really. I I don't have any hard data on this, but it it almost seems like it's brought the command line. You know, it's brought the command line to the people in a way. Uh, it's kind of made it something that, you know, you see, you see people using the command line for productive stuff. You know this, but yet then then brings this uh, this kind of an issue. So, it's particularly an issue if you have a lot of data, and the terminal terminal software in, in general has an issue if you like if you render two hundred megabytes of data in the terminal. It's just uh, amplified if you try to deal with uh, double sized strings in the terminal. Okay, well, I think. I think we're about ready to wrap it up this time. Are there just a few quick pointers of projects people can go if they're, they've got continued interest in this that you guys can mention? Yeah, I'd, I'd like to mention the International Work Group, Working Group, github.com slash node.js slash intl. And we're trying to be a focal point for all these types of issues for Node.js and see that they're resolved and see that liaisons with other standards. For example, we have the ECMA 402 editor participate in these conversations a lot. So that's, that would be one resource. 
Shameless self-plug. I'm working on a, a tutorial for internationalization. It's called International uh, IAT9 All. It's still working progress, but if you want to check it out earlier or if you have some input, I'd gladly welcome it. I'm also open to any contribution. If you didn't plug it, I would. <laughs> so on the topic of plugging things, it's it's a tradition and note up that the guests try to think of a few things to plug maybe unrelated or maybe related to the podcast itself. Do you two have anything you want to plug to our listeners right now? Well, I need to make sure I don't have, I don't need to plug my roof because we're getting, getting some more rain here in California, but that's good. Uh, we can use it. Yeah. I'd like to plug our, the, the globalization pipeline I work on. You know, if, if people take a look at my blog, check it out. You know, I think we're trying to, to make some improvements to how the how translations work. The second one, I want to I want to plug Unicode itself. And we talked about Unicode. Unicode's great. Everyone should use it. If you work with people at all, I was going to say text or internationalization, but you know, everyone works with people. You you benefit from Unicode. And so check out check out Unicode as an organization. There's a lot of stuff happening, especially around digitally disadvantaged languages and people. It's not just character encodings, but languages and other types of support. So check out Unicode. There may be something that, that you can get involved in there. Okay, the first plug from me comes for a web page that has been an extreme time saver for me recently. It has the probably not quite air safe name, What the Fuck Just Happened Today, which just sums up all the craziness that happens in the US politics recently, because it could be a time saver for you as well. And a second plug, I would add on top of that a nice example of a problem that happens in internationalization, which is a Japan Times article on the struggle that interpreters have with trying to translate the speeches of Trump. When you do public messaging, many people might not be aware that there are other people trying to translate it, and being coherent in what you're doing is is. I probably am uh, the greatest example is it's always a challenge to be coherent and uh, particularly if you're a public speaker try to make sure that you're not running into that problem my third plug would be for steven universe which is an uh, american tv show for kids and not kids which gives great like to me it was very special in that it gives a great insight in empathy and understanding the different which is certainly part of this podcast and what internalization is about for, for me. And last but not least, I have a small talk to uh, a YouTube video about the history of Japan, which is just very fabulous to watch. And uh, it's a few minutes of your time that you thought, mm, nice. And I would like to plug one thing myself, the Codex Alera book series by Jim Butcher. It's been described as many things Harry Potter meets Pokemon meets the Roman Empire is generally where it ends up. So, yeah, it's definitely a fun little romp of a book series if you are interested in that. Well, I think that's actually it for this show. Be sure to follow at NodeUp on Twitter if you're interested in sponsoring the show and want to support more of these. Please email NodeUp at gmail.com for more info. Thank you so much for listening and goodbye.